congregation. I mean, here's a congregation that's impressed with spiritual power, but ignorant of the power of the gospel to bring unity. In fact, ignorant of the power of the gospel to kill indwelling sin, to transform us into the image of Christ. Here's a church that's astounded by the concept of freedom in Christ, but who has absolutely no idea how to shepherd a brother who is in the midst of sexual immorality. Here's a church who wants to celebrate the fact that the gospel has elevated women to a place that they've never held in the world. And yet they do not understand that gender is God's creation design, and it's, it's got in it inherently a system of authority for the home and the church, and that design actually glorifies God. Here's a church that, that deeply values spirituality, but neglects the corporate component of worship who prizes unencumbered zeal, but can't find enough zeal to learn to love their brothers and sisters. There's a church with members who really want to grow. They really want to be noticed also for their spiritual growth, but they are at the same time neglecting what it means to care for the growth of the other members in the church. There's a church that values the gift of tongues because it looks so spiritual. And they value it even more than the preaching of God's word. And so the confusions in Corinth, I would say, are still present today. Where people equate God's spirit more with speaking in tongues than they do with transformed lives. Where people confuse spiritual growth with spiritual gifts. Where members want to be celebrated as those who are really useful and can do great things and can influence others more than they just want to be members of the body of Christ and come and serve where they discipline themselves to just ordinary participation in worship. Some of you come from backgrounds where you've seen spiritual gifts elevated to a place of strange honor. In some church traditions, Tongues and other seemingly mystical gifts are thought and taught to be evidence of a higher spirituality. So maybe those guys over there need to read chapter 14. They do. But chapter 14 is for you and me as well. Because if you've got anything in you that is more drawn to individualism, than it is to the overall good of the body of Christ. This is for you. If you've got anything in you that feels discontent with the slow, ordinary progress of spiritual growth, this is for you. If there's any part of you that's still looking for something big, something miraculous to happen spiritually in you, then this is for you. If you struggled with how other people see you in the church and your value, and your purpose, and your place, this is for you. What we've just read teaches us that spiritual gifts must build up the church. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the essential formula, eagerness channeled, and then a welcome home. We're going to start with the essential formula. I want you to imagine that verse 1 is like a piece of wood, like a a 2 by 4 You put blocks on either end to support that piece of wood. 
and it is really strong. And it will only break if you put pressure in one particular area. Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So on one end of the board, it says pursue love. In the middle of the board, it says earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. On the other end, it says especially that you may prophesy. It's actually an extremely profound statement about what is true doctrinally and how to live that doctrine out, practice. And so if you press one portion of this particular sentence to the exclusion of pressure on the other portions of the sentence, the piece of wood will break, the sentence will come apart. Now there's two words that I feel are necessary to define. The first word is prophesy. What does Paul mean when he refers to prophecy? That you may prophesy. The guy who edited the ESV study Bible is a longtime professor at Beeson Divinity School. And he he defines it like this. Speech that reports something that God spontaneously brings to mind, but which is spoken in merely human words, not words of God. Therefore, it it can have mistakes and it must be evaluated. And he cites 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. And I think you actually can add even more clarity to that. You can avoid lots of contradictions in the Bible when you begin to define prophecy very broadly. Words spoken about God or Christ and His kingdom. Which can explain why in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says women are praying and they're prophesying. They're not standing up and preaching. If you, if you say that's what's going on there, then when you come to chapter 14, you have to explain why Paul is going to come later and say women should keep silent in the church. To prophesy is to speak rich, wonderful truth concerning Jesus and his gospel and the comfort that is found in him. And you will probably quote Scripture as you do it. If we understand the gift of its, as it's written in the text, then what I am doing right now is exercising the gift of prophecy. But you also have the capacity to exercise the gift. Imagine that you're talking with a friend who is struggling with particular fears and doubts And circumstances, what is God doing in my life? And you might say, something as simple as, as friend, you know God is is faithful. You know that He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. You might have no idea that you're quoting Deuteronomy 31, Hebrews 13, but you are. And so here is a moment of simple encouragement And the Bible calls it prophecy. Speech. Meant to build up the church. Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. John Calvin explains the prophet dispenses by prophesying what has been received by revelation. If you ponder that definition, it's super helpful in understanding how the prophet in the Old Testament has a similar calling to the prophet in the New Testament. 
In the Old Testament, there was no written word. God gave His word to that prophet and He spoke. Nobody ever thought that the prophet was coming up with something. They would say, this is God's word. But today, you have the written word of God. And so you might prophesy by simply speaking the words that have already been revealed. Before the coming of Christ, God gave His exact word to the prophet and that prophet spoke. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Meaning His Son is the revelation. Old Testament prophets were looking forward to Him. The New Testament apostles were speaking backward about Him. And they were given by God to the church to lay this foundation of the gospel that Jesus taught. And so those apostles wrote and taught God's word, what he had revealed. And then that next generation came after them. And they understood that since Christ had come and been, and been crucified and raised from the dead, there was no new revelation. How did they handle the gift of prophecy? They began to study and preach and teach that gospel which had been written down. And they dispensed God's word as it had been revealed. Which is why today, the gift of prophecy can be used in preaching. But it could also be used in knowing your Bible. And in lovingly encouraging each other with God's word. So that it's not mystical. But it is profoundly powerful. The second word we define is tongues. What does the Apostle mean when he refers to the gifts of tongues? Contrary to what a lot of churches would teach today, in the Bible, tongues are actual languages. And there are times that God has gifted His people throughout the history of the church to speak certain known languages. Though that individual may not have known it initially. And He did it so that the Word of God would go forth into places and to people that did not know Him. Which is why in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, the people at Pentecost who heard these tongues were hearing the gospel in their own languages. It was not incessant babbling. And it was also not a secret prayer language that existed between that person and God. If tongues were unknown languages, which is kind of the way people talk about them today, And Paul says they would not even be useful in the church because no one could understand them unless they were interpreted. Now the point about this language concept is proven in verse 10 and 11. We'll get there in just a minute. But now uh, context is is king. On the heels of arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible about God's love displayed to His people. About God's love being adorned in the church. He says... Pursue love. That must be the starting point. And so from a heart of love, you must desire the spiritual gifts. But not necessarily the one that you people in Corinth are so enamored by. Not tongues, but prophecy. How so? Take a look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And so when you take verses 1 through 5 together, you get this essential formula for how the church is to be built throughout the centuries. If you've walked with us from the start of 1 Corinthians, this will be familiar. Chapter 4, chapter 9. I reference this concept that the cross is the foundation upon which the church and its gospel is built. Paul says, I shape my life after that cross. I have a a cruciform life. And then on that foundation of Christ and His cross, those apostles came and they laid that first course of bricks in the spiritual wall of the church. And after them, the next generation was to come and build on what they built. So you might say that the gifts that you possess and I possess are bricks in the wall of the church. After the apostles, the next generation, and the next generation. What God has given to you spiritually and materially and relationally, those are the gifts. The mortar which holds the bricks in place in the wall Paul says is love. The wall would not stand if everybody simply stacked their bricks on the wall. Simply stacked their gifts together without covering the brick in love. Love. Plus my gift, plus your gift, plus your gift. Equals a church built up. Verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Verse 5. That the church may be built up. Spiritual gifts must build up the church. That's the essential formula. Now let's look at eagerness channeled. Lots of people in Corinth really want to have the gift of tongues. They really want to be able to exercise that gift. And so Paul gives four analogies that help the reader see how important it is that the speaker should be understood. The first analogy, verse 1. Now, brothers, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, how will it benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Have you ever thought how great it would be if you could hear one of the great preachers of church history? Some of you might love the concept of being able to hear John Calvin roll in to Christ's prayers today and, and preach. Seems like it'd be great teaching, doesn't it? But it would only really be helpful if you spoke French. But I tell you what, if you don't speak French, he can also preach in Latin. So maybe you're better off with Latin. The point is so obvious, see, unless you have ears to understand the language of the preacher, then he can say the most profound things and you gain nothing spiritually. Secondly is this analogy of the flute and the lyre. If they play, but they do not hit actual notes, then no one can even understand what song is being played. Third analogy, the bugle. It's a traditional weapon, you know. Charge, right? 
When that horn is played, people know we will respond to that sound. But what if they play no notes that mean anything when they're joined together? Nobody charges in the back. Fourth analogy. And this is really the exact issue that's going on in Corinth. If you utter speech that is not intelligible, nobody knows what you're saying. You might as well be talking into the air. In the Bible, tongues are known languages. Take a look at verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Here's the point where eagerness must be channeled. Words that are unintelligible would make the hearer be just as useless as if they could not hear at all, if they were totally deaf. Verse 11, you are so interested in the concept of spiritual power. But speech that cannot be understood has no power at all. The word foreigner is also the word for barbarian. Barbarian became a derogatory term. Those who were speaking a language that the rest of us could not understand. And barbarians were called that because when they spoke, it sounded like bar, 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 bar. They're just barbarians. Paul says, I love your zeal. But unless your zeal can be understood, and then your words mean nothing. Which really has profound implications to all of worship. There would be no value in preaching if you... If the preacher speaks things that no one can understand, I think that's a a serious part of my job. To go to the Scriptures, to open them up and try to explain in a really simple way what is present here. And that's how the power of God's Word is made manifest in preaching. Not because I seek to impress anybody with big words or, or because I can be clever but rather because the Gospel itself is powerful and when God's Word is opened... It is free for the Spirit to do exactly what God intends to do. In order for your eagerness to be channeled, there also has to be cooperation. That's really verse 13 through 19. Between your mind and the Spirit of God, this cooperation. And and, and it seems to me that there is a false dichotomy that exists among Christians today. Well, I visited that church over there, and it's just really heady, kind of cerebral, too much mental work. I really was hoping they'd let the Spirit guide them a little bit. I attended that church over there. They didn't even have an order of worship. It's like they just let the the Spirit go and whatever happens, happens. And some people come from one of those two traditions and they would brag about their own tradition. Well, you know, I mean, that's because we're just a crowd that's made up of really intelligent people. Or, well, our church loves the Holy Spirit. And we want him to be free to lead us. Something of that kind of thinking in Corinth. Take a look at verse 13. Therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Also, you see, the spirit and the mind are not opposed to each other, and they should not be separated. 
If you pray or you sing in a language that no one understands, you may be giving thanks to God in wonderful ways, but the person who is near you receives no help from it at all. Your innermost spiritual being is not at odds with your mind. And so by engaging both mind and spirit, verse 17 says, even an unbeliever could walk into our worship and he could say, Amen, that's useful. Likewise, preaching must engage the mind and the heart. And those who preach must work hard to prepare, but they must also rely desperately on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Preaching is neither an academic exercise nor an unplanned spiritual whim. And neither is worship. There is no such thing as as corporate, spontaneous worship. We plan our worship services so that when we play songs, we can sing those songs to the best of our ability, to notes that people can follow. And we direct our scripture readings in the, in the substance of our worship to support and supplement other things that are coming up in the scriptures of the sermon. And then why do we have these pre-written prayers of confession? Because they are prayers that have been thought through beforehand by people who are far more biblically literate than most of us are today. So that the average churchgoer can come and pray language that is not only scriptural, but is full of biblical themes, and we pray those back to our Father. Now, the point of tongues, the Corinthians' favorite gift, verse 19, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words with a tongue. Spiritual gifts must build up the church. The essential formula, eagerness channeled. We're going to close with a welcome home. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in your evil, in evil, but be but in your thinking be mature. You have to appreciate his pastoral tone, brothers. Followed by a really hard thing to hear. You need to grow up in your thinking. And then he goes on to say, we want the church to be a welcome home for believers. And if you act in childlike ways with these utterings of incessant babblings, that have no meaning and no interpretation, but simply make you feel impressive. And sincere believers won't even feel at home. Mature, thoughtful Christians want all of God's people to feel at home in the church. And he illustrates this with an Old Testament example from Isaiah chapter 28. Context of the passage is this. God would actually punish His people because they had been unwilling to hear His Word. And the way that He would punish them, or discipline them, would be to put them around the Assyrians, people who speak a language that they have no way to understand. And so in Isaiah chapter 28, God is going to use foreign language to discipline His own people, because they will not listen to the clear speaking of the prophetic Word. Now, if we state that oppositely, God's Word 
was spoken in the Hebrew language in the people, to the people of the Old Testament. And when those foreign nations around them did not understand, it was a sign for those unbelievers that something profound was being hidden from them. So that God's prophetic word was spoken to those who had ears to hear what the Spirit would say to His people. And it was a kind of judgment on those who couldn't understand. Paul's point? You can't do that in the church. The church must always be a welcome home where we understand the rich and wonderful teachings of our Lord. And so for people who seem to wish that everyone spoke in tongues, he says, let's imagine that scenario to the extreme, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So that in that scenario, the church is not a welcoming place for Christians and the unbelievers who come and visit think you're crazy. Therefore, says Paul, nothing good is accomplished. But prophecy, speaking the true things about God in clear, understandable words, has a unique power. Look at verse 24. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The words of God, spoken by the people of God, does far more than we might ever imagine. It says in this text that it has the capacity to convict everyone, believer and unbeliever. It has the ability to make you reckon your thoughts and your actions before a holy God. To give account to Him. It has the capacity to lay the secret places of your hearts bare before God. God's Word, spoken by His people, has the capacity to cause sinners like you and me to fall on our face and to worship and say, God is present here. That's a profound gift. It's a profound blessing to the church and to the world. It makes the church a home for the sincere believer but also the church is a potential home for the sincere seeker. Many people equate the Holy Spirit with uh, goosebumps, chills, emotions, hyper feelings. I spent the earliest days of my Christian faith thinking that way. So much so that there was really no place for the ordinary. No place to engage the mind with the spirit. So then what happens when you can't muster up those feelings? When you cannot get a chill and say, oh, that's the spirit. Well, then everywhere you go to worship, you say, well, the spirit of God is clearly not there. Which might be a profound mistake. And I, many times, would wrongly presume the Spirit of God is not present. Is it not true that the Scripture is living and active and powerful enough? Does not the Spirit accompany the the, the Word of God as it goes forth? And is not that the place 
that is more profound than being able to dim the lights and cause you to get chills? The Bible says where the true Word of God is spoken. From the pulpit and from the people. That's where the Spirit of God is at work. And that Spirit always builds up the church. Let's pray.